Hey, it's David, and you're listening to the Tone Bass Classical Guitar Podcast. Really happy to have our second flamenco guitarist on the show, Kainarezo. I wanted to mention that he is a Tone Bass artist, and he's got a wonderful course on flamenco guitar. If you're still not a member, head on over to ToneBase.co and use the promo code PODCAST-3. That's all one word in all uppercase letters, PODCAST-3, for $15 off of your subscription. You'll hear in our interview that Kai is quite the multifaceted musician. He's a great performer, a dedicated teacher with a newly published method, Flamenco Explained, along with being a talented recording engineer. I'm sure many of you are very familiar with the many Guitar Salon International videos out there, and Kai is the recording engineer mastermind behind all those productions. I had a lot of fun picking his brain out with different microphones and hearing his approach to recording the classical guitar. So stay tuned for all that. Let's go ahead and jump into some music, then hear our conversation. This is a really great tune, and I love the title. Valerius Dekai. Thank you. 
nowadays it's much more common for flamenco guitarists to be able to read uh or at least read a chart yeah but until very recently even being able to read music was you know very rare yeah in the flamenco world and mostly the the teaching approach for flamenco is just using the completely ear completely by rote yeah 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 so that's that's part of what's interesting about what i'm doing now because i am now teaching flamenco and i have to find this you know sort of halfway point between teaching it the way i believe it ought to be taught and the way i was taught and then realizing that not everyone lives near a teacher or you know can learn that way yeah. and that also if i want to bring this into the university i have to you know, satisfy the basic requirements yeah, yeah. of academia. It's finding that balance. And uh, yeah. for, for listeners who don't know, uh, you have written a wonderful uh, flamenco. Um, how would you explain it? I don't want to say technique book, but it's, it's kind of definitely a, not a technique. It's, it's, it's a little bit of just the general flamenco. It's like a method. Yeah. But it's more my attempt to explain how flamenco works, which is why we called the book Flamenco Explained. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I wrote it with Scott Wolf, who's a classical guitar DMA. Uh, and he was taking some lessons with me. And at a certain point, he sort of said, like, you know, I actually understand all this stuff that I didn't understand. He was like, you should think about, you know, writing a book because the way you teach it is is a little different and really clear. And I said, there's no way you can make a book out of this. Like, this is just sort of how I teach. And he was like, I'll... I'll help you do that, you know? Yeah, so he yeah. really pushed me into yeah. it. Uh, and he did a lot of the work in terms of layout and finding some really cool ways to illustrate in the book uh, the way I teach. Yeah. So, yeah. So How long of a project cool. was it putting this? Uh, oh, it's a, I'm not going to answer that. You don't even want to think no. back to it. <laughs> it's it's always, embarrassing. Well, um, it's always, it's a commitment. And, you know, I, I mean, I know there are a couple other things here and there but at least from what i gather this is kind of the first proper flamenco method that actually kind of works in a sense i mean or, yeah i i mean i know you don't part want to of like, me wants to say it of course it is and part of me wants to be like no there's i mean dennis coster my teacher in new york way back 30 years ago um has written some really good books uh, and there's there have been a few books. The Juan Martin book, which was probably the first important flamenco method, which is now, I would say, the only reason people deride it a little bit now is just because it's been around so long, and mm -hmm. people have heard that people have heard so many beginner guitarists play that material that you want to say like, ugh, enough already. But yeah. the truth of the matter is, it was pretty. Good. That yeah. First method. Yeah. I mean, and it was really important. It got so many people into flamenco and there was nothing wrong in it, mm -hmm. uh, which is really important. Dennis's book, again, you know, some fantastic material. And Dennis was a student of Savicas and Mario mm. Scudero. Wow. So he was really keeping alive sort of that whole school and still is. Um, but what none of the books really did was explain how compas works and how the rhythms work and how you play flamenco when you're not reading a score, right? Because all of these books essentially show you the techniques and eventually present you with a score to play. And so you play that piece the way it's written. And what I've really tried to do is give you all the tools you need to play your own pieces and get material from other sources yeah. than my book or my website and be able to put it all together in a way that makes sense. 
And your book, it, it's geared towards a guitarist who already knows how to play the instrument. Yeah. Was it geared specifically towards classical guitarists or just a guitarist who knows how to read? The idea when we were putting the book together, and we talked a lot about this, and what we ended up deciding was that it was basically for classical guitarists who would like to understand how flamenco works. So we do assume you know your way around a guitar and you can read. Um, we're just, for the Flamenco Explained website, putting together a course for absolute beginners. Mm -hmm. And it's amazing doing that just to see all the stuff you assume, because we've been playing for so long that it's like, and then you do this. And Tara, who's my partner and my business partner and my producer, uh, and also plays. And so she's a student. She'll stop me every now and then. She'll be like, um, yeah, what does that word mean? Yeah. And I'll be like, oh, right. Not everyone knows this stuff because, you know, when you've, so I'm when still learning how to do that. musical language for practically all your life, it's right. so easy to forget. Oh, the general public has no idea what I'm talking about. Exactly. So it's finding, yeah, exactly. So I wanted to make, yeah, I wanted to make this book for people who already play and want to understand flamenco. And then, you know, the website's starting to, to do kind of well. And so we get a lot of requests for this and that. But yeah. the one we get the most is like, uh, excuse me, I don't really know where to start, Yeah, you know, yeah. from the beginning. And people will say, oh, I can't start, you know, I want to learn how to play the guitar, but flamenco is too hard, right? To which I'm always saying, well, any great flamenco guitarist you listen to probably started playing flamenco guitar, Yeah, you know? So yes, you can start with this. Yeah, um, But what it's intimidating. You, what would you say is the hardest part for classical guitarists? Not necessarily transitioning just to flamenco, but learning flamenco. Do you find just the lack of sheet music and using your ear more? Is it the rhythm or does it the, completely depend on the player? The biggest hurdle is that most people want to play flamenco guitar and they don't listen to flamenco. Mm. That's by far the biggest hurdle. I have so many students who, when I ask them, who are you listening to? They either don't know how to answer or they'll say, you know, the Gypsy Kings. And, you know, I love the Gypsy Kings, but they're one tiny little corner of flamenco. Yeah. Um, and, you know, um, they're like the pop music of flamenco. So if you're not listening to flamenco day in, day out, and you don't have it in your ears, the chances that you're going to be able to figure it out and really understand it are just really slim. It's like, yeah. hey, I want to learn blues guitar, but I'm never going to listen to the blues. I want to learn jazz, but I like to listen to something else, you know? Yeah. And that's really what happens. People come at it thinking like, oh, show me a score and I can learn this music. And it's like, no, that's just that's I, not how it works. I think it might also be a little bit, at least in the States, you know, we have so much access to classical concerts jazz concerts, rock concerts, but to find a flamenco guitar, you got to search a little bit, you know? Absolutely. This is true, but... That's no we, excuse. Right. <laughs> and there's so much more access than there used to be. Like when I was yeah. coming up, and I'm now old enough to say, when I was a kid, uh, but I had to scour the record stores to find anything. There was yeah. no YouTube. There was no Spotify. None of my friends had flamenco records to share with me. Like it was all me going out there, hitting record stores as often as possible. Every time I went to Spain, I would load up on any oh, yeah. name I had ever heard, and I would bring back as many records as I could afford. And I was obsessed with listening to flamenco. Yeah. And I think that that really made the difference. And everyone I know who's any good is obsessed with the music. Like, 
you know, it's almost ridiculous to to be saying this because, of course, you need to listen to the music that yeah. you want to play. But with flamenco, somehow, especially classical players, feel like, oh, well, that's the thing I can learn as if it was like a new kind of tremolo, like yeah. something you're adding it's just to your Spanish guitar. Right. It's like it's not just like a little different technique you're adding to your toolbox. It's a whole different style of music with a you know ancient culture and and just so much behind it. At least in Granada, the guitar makers are very particular how you name them, you know. They get at least some of them, the more old school yeah. guys. If you call a luthier out there a guitar luthier, they are angry. They go by guitarero, at least from well, what I saw. You're talking about Rafa. I'm talking yes, yes. I am. He's <laughs> got he's got a sign in his shop that says No soy luthier, soy guitarero, right? And that's like <laughs> And I remember I made the mistake asking so do you build classical and flamenco guitars? And he he was not a happy he man. He Spanish guitars, right? Yeah. yeah. He, uh, we were having wine and he took away my wine glass at that point. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, actually, Rafa, the first time I met him, he was like really looking at me sideways. Like the, he was suspicious of me and it was really hot. And when I walked in, he had offered me a beer and I said, yeah, thanks. Um. And a couple minutes, I forget what happened, but at a certain point we were leaving the shop together to go somewhere. And he was like, aren't you going to take your beer? And I was like, well, it's done. And it was, you could just tell that in that minute, like for some reason, the fact that I had finished my beer and the amount of time we were there meant I had like passed his test. And now I was cool and and we've been (laughs) fine ever since. And I was like, really? That's okay. If that's what it takes. He's uh. For listeners who haven't seen him, it, it, remind me his last name, Rafa Moreno. Moreno. Mar- it's yeah. just Rafa Moreno. Well, okay. Or, this or is, this that's is a, a story. great thing. No, but this is a great thing to clear up because in all in Spain and in Latin America, mm-hmm. we all have two last names, right? The first last name is the father's, and the second last name is the mother's. Is it kind of a hyphenated thing? Or no, it's no, no, just, not at all. You're just two different last yeah, names. Yeah, you don't really get a middle name. You get your first name, and then your dad's last name, and then your mom's last name. So huh. your dad's last name is still your real last name. So, for example, Rafa Moreno Rodriguez, everyone knows him as Rafa Moreno. His full name technically has the Rodriguez, so some people will refer to him here as Rodriguez in the same way that some people will talk about a Montero guitar, and I never knew what that was. And finally, I was like, oh, they're talking about Antonio, right? Antonio Marin, Marin, Antonio Marin Montero, right? His name is Antonio Marin, but his label says Montero. So that second last name is actually the less important one. The name in the middle is the one. Gotcha. Yeah. Oh, well, that cleared up a lot of things yeah. for me. I'm glad you said that. <laughs> yeah, and especially, you know, with the, the guitar salon gig, like, I, I hear this. Yeah, some of them I literally don't know what the second last name yeah, is, and yeah. they'll talk about this person for a while, and I'm like, who are they talking about? And then finally I'm like, oh, you're talking about so-and-so. That makes you know? sense, yeah. yeah. Yeah, Rafa, he's a, he's a character. He is he, definitely a character. He's got an enormous beard. He wears, he has like, an this... an epic beard. An epic beard. Yes. I mean, like, Andrew Shep's epic, but... <laughs> Probably no one knows him, but it, it's Santa Claus epic type yeah, beard. It really is. And he wears a French hat. A beret. A yeah. beret. While playing berets, no. And uh he has this really cute tiny uh shop in the heart of Granada. Yep. And I think he just drinks all day while making guitars. Not that he's getting drunk. I don't mean that as a negative yeah. way. Well, but it's he, very it's very hot in the summer. It, so. It's very hot. 
and he has these it's so great he has these little single shot glasses that he's more of a wine guy i think and he just sips on a little bit of wine throughout the day and he just seems like you know when you first meet him you know you got to pass his test he's a little intimidating when you first meet him but then once you get to know him he's a a really cool guy and And if you look on the back wall he's got like hundred mugs and yeah they all have the names of his you know his his real friends yeah know, people who go in there regularly <laughs> enough to deserve a and there's a, photos what i maybe it's just i haven't been to any other luthier or i should say guitar arrow shops uh outside of uh granada but it's just amazing seeing all these photos of the players that these makers have witnessed uh being played yeah. by their instruments and i i can't even imagine how fulfilling it must be for someone like Rafa or others to go to a concert with a really renowned player making just beautiful sound on their guitar that they saw when it started off just as a couple blocks of wood. I, I mean, I can't even imagine how that feels. Yeah, and that's one of the great things about Granada. It's just there's so many guitar... You know, I've, I kind of grew up in guitar maker shops. Yeah. Once I got into flamenco, like, I think the first... After I'd been playing for like a year, I went to Spain and spent the summer at the Cordoba Festival. Mm-hmm. And I ran into Stephen Hill, who's mm-hmm. my age, and he was just starting out as a maker. Yeah. And his goal that summer was to meet every guitar maker in Spain. Wow. And he had a car. And we met Manuel Reyes. And then we went around all of Andalusia. And we went to Sevilla. We went to Jerez. We were taking guitar lessons everywhere we went. Yeah. Um, Is Stephen a player as well, or was? Yeah, he's actually not a bad player. Yeah, he's he was there taking the. This was actually my first year, and I remember Dennis's advice before I went to Spain was take the beginner class, no matter how good you think you are, mm-hmm. take the beginner class. So I was in the beginner class, and Stephen was actually in the like advanced class with Paco Peña, um, as a player. But yeah. But and he had his first ever flamenco guitar with him that he had made. Wow! Um, Does he still play today, or is he just? He, I mean, he makes guitars, but he you know he plays enough to to show them off to you if you want to hear them. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's yeah. He says most, he's not a bad player. Most makers, you know, you, you see them try to play. It's like, whoa! I, you've got such a great ear, but <laughs> yeah, I know. But some of them can play. Yeah, just a few. Um, yeah. So Stephen's one of those guys. Yeah, we we met every guitar maker. In Granada, we met, you know, we went to Madrid and met all those guys. Um, and I ordered my first real guitar, and I still have my 1989 Stephen Hill that he made me. And that was your, that was the first, my real, first guitar. real guitar. Oh, that must yeah. have been exciting. Yeah. I've never ordered a guitar myself. I've always bought used, but there's got to be something so yeah. exciting opening up that case the first time. Yeah, I don't even remember, pick, I don't remember how I got the guitar. Don't remember if I went to because I visited him quite a few times when he was still. Now he works in Spain for like the past fifteen years. But I visited him in in Lewis, the little town outside of London where he worked for years mm-hmm. a few times. I don't, so I may have picked up the guitar. And the other thing that happened with that guitar was like six years ago, I sent it to him to do some stuff, and UPS just destroyed oh, it. No. Uh, the pictures are just painful to watch. And so he had it. It got to him, and so he basically, he resuscitated it. So it's got a new top, it's got new sides, the back and the neck are original. He Mm -hmm. salvaged the rosette and the bridge. 
Uh, and it's, you know, this was after an extra 25 years of experience on his part. So yeah. um, I hate to admit it's a much better guitar than it was, so, <laughs> but it's still his number eight. Yeah. And I have that. And, and you still, the, the label survived. Yes, the label survived. Yeah, very cool. You know, you, you probably are very knowledgeable about this. There's, at least from what I gather, and I know what guitars I like the sound of, but I, I don't know a ton about building and everything. How would you describe the Madrid school versus the Granada school of building? It seems from my perspective, those are the two main spots mm -hmm. where guitars are coming out with kind of the Rodriguez family in Madrid. And then, I mean, there's so many. Yeah, Granada. Well, Cordoba's, so Rodriguez and, and Reyes Cordoba. are in Cordoba. Oh, they were in Cordoba. Okay. Yeah. And they, they both sort of changed. They both started out making smaller, lighter guitars and at a certain point really shifted to bigger, sort of more solid. And I would say that's really the difference. Mm -hmm. uh, like the Madrid guitars are bigger. They're sort of a little heavier. They're a little more solid. Um, the Granada guitars are definitely lighter and smaller and maybe a little more refined and a little less powerful. And that's like a huge sweeping generalization. Yeah, But yeah. if you had to generalize, you know, lighter and more refined, I would say in Granada. Although I'm sure some people would say it's exactly the opposite. Yeah. So, you know. <laughs> We're um, starting the fire here. Yeah, now. but they're yeah. definitely, the one thing I can say is that the, the Madrid guitars are, are bigger. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, and this is all after a certain point, you know, like I have a 69 Gonde, which is a, Madrid guitar, but it feels much more like a Granada guitar. Like yeah. they're all coming out of the, you know, sort of Torres school. And what's interesting is, so Madrid is, is really the, the Ramirez lineage, right? Everyone in Madrid kind of came from that. Yeah. And then the Esteso lineage, which is the Conde, the flamenco side, although mm -hmm. they made some great classicals. And then Granada was all this maker who most people don't even know about anymore, Benito Ferrer. And then Antonio Marin had this relationship with Boucher. Mm -hmm. so, the French maker. Yeah. Right? yeah. So Robert Boucher who's made very few guitars, but they're amazing. And so there's this really heavy Boucher influence now because Antonio is really, you know, kind of like the, the grand old man of Granada guitar making. There's something so special about Granada where it just seems everyone loves the classical Spanish and flamenco guitar. And, and you know, it's probably pure luck, but I play, as you know, I play on a Paco Marin, uh, which I bought when I was in Granada my first time. I wasn't planning on it, fell in love, paid it in cash, terrified walking across the street with a couple dollars like that in my pocket, but, you know, everything worked out. And that before that, when I knew I was going to buy it, but, you know, I was still kind of demoing it, I went to this restaurant. I forgot the name. What, what's the, it's where Segovia used to dine. It has the... Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, I forget what it's called right now. Uh, Chica, Chico, something... Chiquitos? It might be Chiquitos. I think it was yeah. Chiquitos. It's a fantastic restaurant. Segovia used to dine there along with, I think, Defia used to eat there back then. A lot of really influential figures in, in our world. And I was, there, there's kind of this restaurant portion and then a bar portion. And I mean, the tapas in the bar portion are amazing to begin with. And I was standing there. I was like, shit, that really looks like Paco Buret. I wonder if that's him. And he was sitting with uh, an elderly gentleman. And I ended up coming up to him and 
I am the worst Spanish speaker you would ever meet. I took five years of Spanish through middle of high school, still could barely get around. And I finally worked up the guts to ask, are you Paco Moran? And it ended up being him. And he was the nicest guy ever. And he was sitting with his uncle Antonio Moran, having beers. And I, I had no idea that's who he was till he introduced me. It was only in Granada would you have an experience like that. It, There's no other town that's quite as guitar yeah. as Granada. I and think. I was asking the bartenders about it when they left and... They weren't even guitarists, and they had praising words. Oh, Paco and Antonio, they are such amazing makers and such <laughs> great people, and so many people come in from out of town to visit them. It's just, you would never experience something like that anywhere else, at least in my opinion. Yeah, no, I think they're they're all proud of, of, of Granada as a guitar town, and of course a lot of foreigners come in and spend a lot of money because they come to buy guitars, and there's a lot of good and guitar people like tourism. Pepe are... It's like a rock star walking down yeah. the street. I mean, he is a rock star in a yeah. sense, but just everybody knows who yeah. he is. I'm telling you, to any listeners out there, go to Granada. Actually, go to CSU uh, Festival yeah, de la Guitarra, which is where arts. I met you the first time. Yeah, Summer Arts is awesome. Um, so summer CSU Summer Arts is a program that happens has been happening for many, 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 many years. Um, and it usually happens at one of the CSU campuses. Uh, and I started teaching when it was in Monterey Bay and did summers there. Uh, and I forget what happened. So, uh, and it's every, every art form imaginable from, you know, 3D graphics to poetry to, you know, sword fighting for the stage to all kinds of different, you know, music. And I mean, it's anything you can think of that's arts related. Uh, and they have basically fantastic teachers from all over the world come and, and teach there. Uh, and every summer, one or two of the programs gets to go abroad. So we were supposed to go, I think, in 2019, and this was 2017 or 16 or whatever. Uh, I can't even remember. And someone else's program fell through. And so they said, can you guys put this together really quickly uh, for this coming summer? to do uh, a summer arts in Spain. And so Scott Morris called me and he said, how do we make this happen right away? And I said, well, let me call some people in Granada and see what's going on, because that would be the obvious place for it. Mm -hmm. And it just turned out that my good friend Vicente Coves was about to launch his first gr international Granada guitar festival. So I said, hey, can we, you know, kind of blend these things and make it all happen together. And he said, of course, that'd be fantastic. You know, we'd be bringing more audience to his festival. And so it all just worked out so well that first year. Uh, and of course, Pepe came to do master classes. Vicente himself is a fantastic player. He actually plays with Pepe quite a bit. Yeah. Uh, and he's, he's a, a very great teacher. Uh, close student of Pepe's as well. Yeah. And they've recorded together at this point. Um, oh, really? I didn't yeah, know that. They've done a like couple a whole CD together. Or, or a just couple a couple? CDs. Yeah. Are they are they available now or I think so. Yeah, I think huh. they're on Nexus. I had no idea. Yeah, and so the program went so well that the mayor of Granada literally said, "Hey, you guys should come back next year." And we all said, "Well, that's not how it works. You know, each program gets to go abroad once every, you know, 10 or 20 years or something." And the mayor said, "But we want this to happen. So what can we do to make it happen?" And they made it really easy. Uh, so we talked to the folks at CSU thinking this is never going to happen. And they said, 
well, sure, if they're going to, you know, make it so nice for the students to stay there and provide places for the concerts and provide great accommodations for the classes and all that, uh, we could do it again. So we did it again and it went really well. And it looks like now we'll be doing it for this foreseeable future in Granada every summer, um, which is pretty amazing because I now get paid to go to Spain every summer right? and teach flamenco, which is kind of amazing. Yeah. There's so, I mean, I don't even know how many makers there are in Granada, at least oh, 25. There's like 30. over 40 established wow. makers. Yeah, there's tons. It's the place to go to be a, an apprentice because there's so many people making guitars that you can learn from anyone. And what's kind of, I mean, and now there's a guitar making competition associated with the festival. Yeah, yeah. And this year they're actually having classical and flamenco. And I think I'm judging the flamenco side of that, so that'll be fun. But the guitar makers now know that there's all these kids coming from the States every summer. So it's kind of a thing now to try to have at least a guitar oh, or two really? for the kids oh, to I... see so people can try them because the word gets out. Yeah. Um, and that's one of the things that it's really nice that we get to bring that to the city and like help the kind economy there. Back, and, yeah. yeah. So that I love that about it. And I mean, I've been going, I've literally been going to Granada for 30 years now. Well, along with teaching at the summer arts for CSU, you've recently started one of the, I, I guess one of the first flamenco programs in the States at a university. Yeah, this will be the first program where you can get a bachelor's of music uh, and spend four years studying flamenco guitar. That's amazing. Yeah, it's really cool. Um, and I have to thank Scott Morris for that because he's the one who hired me for summer arts in the first place when it was here. Yeah. He's the one who put together summer arts in Spain. And at a certain point he said, hey, you know, do you want to start a flamenco program at CSU? And yeah, I mean, absolutely. You know, I have the book now and the Flamenco Explained website. So I've been investing more time and thinking more about teaching. Um, but I've always loved teaching. It's, uh, you know, I have a lot of friends who grudgingly teach um, to make some money. And I've always just really like it's it's a passion of mine to, to teach yeah. flamenco and help people get it. I mean, it's going to be a tough career if you don't like teaching because... Every musician, no matter what, will teach at some point. Yeah, yeah, and it's that's just a, a part of our life. That's one of the things I try to tell my students. You know, there are things if you don't you have like to teaching. Learn. You're in the wrong field. Right. <laughs> yeah, unless you're. Yeah, unless if you're I mean, just there's stupid good, but even the best yeah, players was, are. Teaching I was just going to say, classes. unless you're David Russell, and then I was like, oh right, but he's he still teaches yeah, master classes. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So it's it's really exciting. We're just starting the. Um, CSU Dominguez Hills is about to transition from a BA with a music major to a bachelor's of music program. Oh, great. So that's kind of cool. And then, yeah, you'll, your, your primary instrument will be flamenco guitar. So you'll be doing four years of private lessons in flamenco. We'll have flamenco classes and ensembles. Yeah, so we're just getting off the ground. We'll have a few more students in the fall. Uh, right now, it's just private lessons with mm -hmm. my flamenco students. Uh, but we have a beginner and an intermediate flamenco class approved for next year. Great. And then we'll get the ensembles once we get the numbers up there. And yeah, it just seems like kind of what my life's been working towards. Yeah. It's actually putting a program like this together. And obviously, you are going to be accepting people into the program who've never played the guitar, but... Is this kind of geared towards someone who's got sufficient chops with classical or maybe another style, but is just looking or just starting to dip their toes 
into the water for flamenco, or are you looking to accept students who are serious about this and have been studying flamenco already? I would love to have students who are very serious about it already, uh, but really sort of the flamenco version of a classical guitar degree yeah. so that yes in theory you could come in if you've never played the guitar before but it's a little weird to think of being a music major if you've never yeah right <laughs> played the guitar before so i would imagine you know that most of the students will be guitar players um who either play some flamenco uh again i would find it a little odd if you declared a flamenco, flamenco major without yes. any flamenco yes yeah. and caveat i'm not allowed to call it a flamenco major um oh my bad Bachelor's of Music. Bachelor's of Music. With a major in performance and flamenco guitar is your primary instrument. I think those are that's the approved language. Um, because I keep saying the same thing. Like yeah, flamenco yeah. major, degree in flamenco, and Scott keeps saying, No, you can't say that. I'm just learning about academia. Yeah. Um, so I'm not allowed to say flamenco major, but it's a flamenco major. Yeah. Um because I'm trying to think, are there any no, flamenco programs in the U.S. or is this because there are schools? I mean, USC's got Adam Del Monte, but there's no flamenco yes. major. You can do like a you can a minor study. study, with, study yeah, but, you can study with Adam there, which is fantastic. Uh, and there are some schools that um, that have good and great flamenco teachers. There is a program which I will not name that claims to have a degree in flamenco, uh, but for the same reasons that I just explained, um, they can't really and they don't even really i think have a teacher anymore so there's one program out there that claims to have a flamenco major Thanks amsterdam's there. a legit program oh, okay. amsterdam is sort it's of, so weird of all places amsterdam well because have... because baco peña landed there i mean they basically oh, that's where he started his career or well no baco peña is actually he's a fascinating character um and as long as this is a podcast for classical guitarists and we're talking about flamenco when flamenco guitarists talk about paco we are talking about paco de lucia Paco Peña is a great player and a lot of other very impressive things, but he, it's like in basketball, if you talk about Michael, you know, that's, it's, it's, it's Michael Jordan, yeah. right? It's not that other really good basketball player named Michael something else. Um, so Paco Peña is another guy named Paco who a lot of foreigners know about, but he was never very well known in Spain because he left as a very young guitarist and moved to London and established his career there. Really good player. Like I, I'm, I'm not trying to say anything bad about Paco Peña. I'm just saying that Paco de Lucia is like a giant. Um, yeah. And Paco Peña is a great guitarist who really sort of embraced, um, in the same way kind of that Dennis did, uh, upholding traditional flamenco. So he was not an innovator. He was not one of the guys who got all jazzy and, and you know, got flamenco to where it is today, but he's a fantastic player of traditional stuff. And at some point, and I don't remember how exactly, he was hired by the conservatory at Rotterdam to start a flamenco program, which is um, has been really one of the most important flamenco programs outside of Spain. And there really wasn't a program in Spain either. Now there are a couple really good programs in Spain. Uh, but there weren't until the last sort of 15 years-ish. Hmm. Um, but yes, so in the States, this will be the only program where you yeah. can get a Bachelor's of Music with a major in performance and have your primary instrument be flamenco guitar. And I'm really hoping to turn it into um, 
something like what Paco Peña did. I mean, his is kind of the model because there are so few models out there. Uh, but I want my students to come out really understanding how flamenco works, obviously to be accomplished players. I want them to understand how to accompany both the singing and the dance. Mm -hmm. And I also, and this is really important, want them to have a lot of what any other good guitarist should have. So yeah. they need to understand theory. They need to be able to read a chart. They need to be able to improvise a little and speak the language of jazz. They need to be able to read a score. They need to be able to do a little bit of what a classical guitarist does, a little bit of what a jazzer does, and everything that a flamenco player does. So that's that's the goal. Yeah. Four years is a uh, good amount of time to work towards that. Four years is enough time to get to the point where you can jump out in the world and start really learning as a young professional. Yeah. Now, we're talking all about these guitars and you're very knowledgeable about these instruments, and partly because you've been around Spain so much, but also you are the man who records all of the videos for GSI, at least the ones that are done at GSI. There's a couple yeah. of, I, I think, kind of sponsorship type videos where GSI posts. On. Yes, there's there's a couple. Um, but a couple out of right. thousands. So Nico in yeah. Europe with Open Strings Berlin, they do fantastic videos. Um, they'll shoot some stuff in Europe mm -hmm. occasionally for us. Uh, and that's recent. And those guys are great. Um, and then, yes, occasionally we'll partner with another company. And that's more because someone else will record a video and they'll borrow a GSI guitar. So they'll produce those videos yeah. and GSI will put them up on their YouTube channel. But the bulk of the like 1,500 videos that are up on the YouTube channel were recorded by me. Um, You've probably recorded the most classical guitarists out of any engineer. I think if there's, yeah, if there's a Guinness record for most guitarists, Definitely most guitars. I think that's probably without a question. Most yeah. guitarists, I maybe Norbert Kraft has me beat. Uh, I don't know, but I've I've recorded a lot. Um, when did, when did these videos start? A couple years ago? No, almost exactly ten years ago. Oh wow! Okay. Yeah, it's been a while. The economy had just collapsed. Mm -hmm. uh, Thanks, Bush. Yeah. Sorry, I'll take that out. <laughs> Do you leave it in? All right, know. I'll leave it in. Um, going to happen again soon. Okay, let me start again. <laughs> Bush had just squandered what he was <laughs> gifted by Clinton. Um, so the economy had just collapsed, and I was actually getting my car fixed uh, at the Volkswagen dealership in Santa Monica, and I didn't know what to do. And then I remembered that Guitar Salon was near there, and I had met the guys earlier, and I think I'd recorded a couple of videos as a player for them when they were literally doing them on a on a phone. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was just hanging out, killing time. And we were talking about my background in Granada and in Spain and playing and talking about guitar makers. And they're like, you seem to know all the guitar makers. And I was like, yeah, that's kind of how I came up was with guitar makers. And they said, do you want a job? And I didn't actually need a job. But the way the economy was going, I thought, I'm probably not in a position to say no. And mm -hmm. like six months later, was so grateful uh, because... So many gigs and students disappeared. I mean, the economy was rough and people just would call and say, I can't afford lessons anymore. And gigs sort of dried up and, and you know, gigs that had paid pretty decent went back down to what people were making here in the 90s. Yeah. Um, it was, yeah, it was a rough time. Anyway, so 
first they wanted to have me be a marketing guy and that I'm just not a marketing guy. Mm -hmm. It just didn't happen. But I did start shooting videos um, and the video was terrible. I'm not a video guy, but I've always done a lot of recording and I actually already had a little recording studio in Hollywood. Uh, So I did pretty good audio um, and very bad video, but at the time no one was doing great video. And so that worked. That made sense uh, for GSI. And that actually sort of was marketing, but I didn't have to do, you know, marketing. So yeah, so we just started cranking out videos. um, And it was really fun because I got to meet all the great players who are in Southern California, which is kind of awesome. Um, And again, Scott Wolf was a big help in this because I know Scott Wolf because his wife, I met his wife the first year I moved to LA. She's a dancer and she was still at UCLA as a student. And I accompanied for the flamenco dance class that they had there for a little while. Yeah. So that's how I knew Wendy. And then she started dating Scott. And so I met Scott and he was a guitarist. And so that's, yeah. So, and he had been, he was still getting his DMA, I think, at the time at USC. So he introduced me to a lot of great players. Yeah. Um, And obviously GSI had great contacts. So little by little, it started to just turn into a thing where people who were in town, um, would call me and say, Hey, can I do a video too? And now it's, you know, now it's at the point where if I wanted to, I could probably schedule people every day of the week. Yeah. Um, You're at the point where you have to decline now. Yeah. Which sucks. I yeah. hate doing that. Um, I, re- I really would love to record just everyone, but, yeah. but you only have so much time. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So now we try to do, you know, one at most two shoots a week. So yeah. it's still, it's still, it's a, still ton. a lot. It's a yeah. lot. And each shoot is anywhere from two to, you know, five or six videos. Well, have you found your approach changes from with the recording of classical guitar over the years, or has it kind of acted it's, very it's, similarly? It's evolved. Um, at first, I they were all two channel recordings, mm-hmm. so um, I would just use a pair of KM, KM84s, and what I would do is I would I actually developed a recording technique that was based mostly on the fact that I needed to keep the mics out of the shot. Okay, so just out of the frame on either side is a KM84. Um, And that's how I did the bulk of the videos for many years. And it was just a thing about placement and then, you know, just, just mixing them. And I sort of decided from the very beginning that I would not EQ anything because in addition to being entertainment, they were supposed to be a fair representation of what the guitar sounded like for someone who might be buying them. So I never EQ'd anything, but that doesn't mean that I would just use the flat recording. I mean, you know, as well as I do, that there's a million things that you can do that will affect how a guitar sounds. So I I feel like I try to get as close as possible to what I heard, if I can remember that, plus reverb. Yeah. Um, because everyone wants a lot of reverb. Mm-hmm. And then um, the nice folks at Apogee gave me this interface. Uh, and at the time in the studio, I had you know a Pro Tools rig, which was totally not portable uh but they gave me this amazing eight channel um ensemble interface and so since i had a portable interface it was multi-channel i was like yeah let's start playing around with more mics and at first i went a little crazy and then i settled on three so there's basically a spot mic and still the km84s uh and the spot mic has evolved over time i've tried (laughs) a lot of different things for a long time i did a tlm 170 uh, which is a great neutral spot mic that a lot of classical... That's a large diaphragm. 
Yeah, medium. It's the same diaphragm as the U89. Okay. Um, Is that the... It's usually the black microphone? Black or silver. It's got the built-in weird little shock mount thing. The gotcha. And it's got like the different polar patterns and everything. Or yeah, yes. It actually has more polar patterns uh, than, than an 87. An, than an 87. Yeah. yeah. It's got, I think, six or seven. I forget. Yeah. Uh, and it's got this cool little remote control polar pattern changer. Um, to be used in post or? No. Or, to, oh, just if yeah. you're across the room. Mm-hmm, exactly. It's got to be handy. It's yeah. It's, I, shit, I actually, I, I didn't have it. I didn't need it, yeah. um, but but it's available for that microphone. And yeah. it's it's a very popular for, for spot mic for classical recordings. Mm-hmm. It's one of the one of the old standards. It's a transformerless version, basically, of a U89. Um, oh, and I used a U89 for years, um, which I also loved. I do kind of like transformers. Um, Just for our listeners, what's a transformer? Oh God, don't ask me. Um, it's a thing <laughs> that makes things sound good. Uh, it's a lot of um, copper wound around like an iron core, and somehow that helps you change things. But and I I don't know. Like I stopped taking science at about the sixth grade, and I I don't you understand just use the your engineering. Ears. Yes, and I did learn how to make cables so I can solder. But I do not understand how yeah. any of my gear works at all. Um, I just get to know it as well as I can. And I do know that I like a few transformers yeah. in my chain. It definitely um, colors the sound a little bit and kind of beefs it up. It warms it up. It just yeah gives um, character to the sound. I think technically the, it adds third order harmonics or second order harmonics. Yeah. One of these things. I don't know. I'm, and the, the quote unquote definition is it's a, an impedance buffer. And it's like, what the f- is that you know <laughs> uh, yeah dude the whole impedance and loads and all this thing is is another one of those things that like i've literally read the explanation like 40 times probably and it makes no and, sense and there's every now and then for a split second i'm like oh that no i still don't understand like i i just don't get it anyway, anyway. you're using the the 89 you went to the one i went from the 89 to the 170 oh actually yeah because i i eventually sold my 89 and got an 87 that I kind of needed at the time because, you know, for the studio, mm-hmm. not for the GSI recordings, uh, but the studio just needed to have an 87. Yeah. Um, and then I kind of regretted that because I loved the 89. I never loved my 87. Yeah. Uh, anyway, then I moved to the 170 and I'm sure I tried a bunch of other stuff, but then I kept borrowing from the guys at AEA. They're 44 and those mm-hmm. guys are awesome and they would lend it to me. And then at a certain point they're like, you know, the reason we lend people mics like this is so that they'll buy them eventually. And I was like, <laughs> but I make all these nice videos for you. Um, so I, I bought the 44 and I, I would do it again in a heartbeat. The, yeah. the AA 44, which is their recreation of the RCA 44 is just one of the most gorgeous microphones on the planet. It's the, uh, for listeners who don't know, it's the kind of Les Paul style microphone or or frank sinatra frank yeah sinatra. if you've seen the old sinatra pictures yep. or ella with the big microphone that's hanging down that says a big RCA kind of rectangular it. thing it is a heavy mic how it's like eight it's, pounds <laughs> you probably need a good stand for that yeah. you don't you don't want to put that on a flimsy stand <laughs> and you're saying aea rents those out to hollywood film companies they, right for, yeah well, for sets they started out as a company that repaired all the old rca mics uh-huh. and so what they have for sets are just empty shells so yeah, they don't want to put a ribbon in there. Yeah, there's no actual breaks. microphone in there. It's just the thing. So if yeah. you're doing a, a, a movie about the 40s or the 50s or the 30s, or I forget when the 44 was developed. But yeah, so that's my rig now. Basically, the 44 with a pair of KM84s uh, for air. And 
it just kind of works on almost everything. And, and when you balance it out, or is the majority of the signal coming from the 44 and then just a little bit for the 84? That's, the, or that's actually it, the fun of mixing. Because yeah, really every how time. much 44 I put in there affects the sound because the proximity effect on that mic is tremendous. So yeah. if you put in too much, it does start to get... A little boomy. Yeah, a little boomy. And again, I don't like to EQ anything. It's sort of a point of pride that and I don't EQ anything. For listeners, proximity effect is, of course, um, with a directional microphone. I can try to demonstrate on this one, but yeah. it's actually designed to eliminate proximity effect, <laughs> but it still has a little bit. When I get really close, it gets really deep. And basically, you're just getting much more low end. Um, yeah. I don't know the science behind it. I just know what happens. Right. But the usually, it's it's more of a thing if you're very close. And that's one of the things. So you learn to use that yeah. really when you're recording. And then when you're mixing, like it's it's basically better than EQ, really. Yeah. Um, you know, proximity effect could be an enemy and it can be your best friend as well yeah you just got to learn that it's there and how to how, how to, to use, use it. it or avoid it depending yeah. on, on what you're trying to do thank you kai for being on the show please join me in two weeks for a conversation with the scottish guitarist matthew McAllister. i'm going to leave things today with a really neat track that's kind of fusion jazz flamenco almost a little bit of rock and roll in there it's titled marchena Savianas, and this was recorded and mixed by kaya himself I'm David Steinhardt, and we'll see you next time for the Tone Bass Classical Guitar Podcast. Mm-hmm.